0: All right. Hello, everyone. The date is October 25th. We are here for yet another episode of Mass Office Hours. We are live on YouTube. You might be listening to this many days later on Spotify, on whatever they call iTunes now, Apple Podcasts, I think, uh, or some other podcast platform. But we are here live chatting with the YouTube folks. I'm joined by the good Dr. Mike Zordos. Uh, world-famous international expert on all things
1: resistance training and a little bit of running too. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great. I would uh, prefer if you said world-famous Instagram star. Um, True. My, my Instagram is sweeping the nation. I made my second post ever today so next time you know I'd, I'd appreciate if you asked me how i wanted to be introduced and that's that's the way i'd like to be introduced yeah well i would i would think if the metric was percentage audience
0: growth you are probably doing about as good as anybody because when you go from four followers
1: to eight that's i mean percentage wise it's astronomical yeah i just say the percentage numbers i just say 100 percent growth yeah you know you can could, could make an infographic you know arrows percentages through the roof and uh Looks great. So yeah, I'm. I'm thanks for the uh, the praise and my social media presence. Of course,
0: yeah. Well, Mike, uh, as much as I'd love to chat about all the insights we could get from your um, your new role as a social media influencer, we have a lot of questions about the real bread and butter, which is fitness, exercise, nutrition, everything in between. Okay, that's what we're here for. So. I think uh, one of the first things I want to ask you about in this episode, it relates to uh, really a series of questions that we've gotten, um, and they're all about concurrent training. So um, let me try to find where that specific one went. Yeah, here we go. There is a question, uh, it said concurrent training discuss how significant the interference effect is, why it occurs, basic strategies to minimize or avoid it when to perform cardio, and in what situations is it unavoidable? So I would say uh, bonus points for a question that basically splits out into every part of what you would want to know about concurrent training. So I, I think uh, basically if you could give a quick rundown of, you know, what it is, uh, how realistic, like how, who should really be worried about this and to what extent and then uh, from a practical perspective, uh, what do we actually do about it? How might we try to uh, to
1: attenuate it or avoid it if possible? All right. So I just tried to jot down as many notes as I could in the uh, 96 seconds or whatever it was that you were explaining that because there is a lot here. Mm-hmm. So I'll start at the basics, which is explaining what it is as you ask Trex, and then we'll go from there into each component of it. So we'll start with that definition. I want to talk then about what perspective we're looking at this from, and then physiologically what might be going on, and then how each person can do their best to work around this interference effect. So concurrent training, and just a basic definition, is the simultaneous inclusion of aerobic exercise and resistance exercise in the same training program. Now, that's very simple, very straightforward, and that can quite literally mean Somebody who is just interested in general health and fitness and they're doing resistance training twice a week and then they're on the elliptical once a week and they're jogging once a week. That is absolutely concurrent training. And so if we just take a step back from the context we're asking about this in, which is from the perspective of gaining strength and muscle and power, many people are engaging in concurrent training and this is a fantastic thing. This is what most people are really looking for because most people are interested in all of the benefits that they're going to get from building bone mineral density through resistance training, specifically axial loading, and the cardiorespiratory benefits of uh, aerobic exercise, uh, and the general health benefits, the cognitive benefits, all those things. But when we talk about this, and the question that was specifically asked was pertaining to something called the interference effect. Now, I'd venture to say that most are probably familiar with this, And this is when we're looking at it from a resistance training perspective, from the perspective of somebody who is looking to get bigger and stronger, let's say. You could also look at the interference effect from the aerobic training perspective, the endurance athlete. But when we look at it from the resistance training perspective is if somebody's doing a lifting program, then they incorporate aerobic exercise into that program. Does that aerobic exercise, quote, interfere with hypertrophy strength and power gains, those adaptations. And so I'll give a short answer in a moment, but there's so much more to discuss. So before I give that short answer, we're then going to get into, but what about the timing? Meaning if you do these on the same day versus on opposite days, what about the modality of aerobic exercise, long distance running versus let's say some shorter duration cycling versus sprinting? right? What about somebody who is just looking to do aerobic exercise, maybe for fat loss, or for physique perspective, as opposed to somebody who's doing a lot of literally long distance running who's interested in performance and that aerobic exercise. So there's a lot to unpack. But the short responses, in terms of does this exist, I would say that it unequivocally exists. Unequivocally, the interference effect exists. Now, how much the interference effect comes into play is very debatable. And I would suggest that even though it exists, you could mostly or even altogether avoid it with some very simple strategies. So I think that's an important distinction is physiologically, does it exist? Yes, it does exist. Can you avoid it if you're a individual looking to get bigger and stronger, but still want to do aerobic exercise? Yes, you can probably avoid it. It's like saying, Does the acute negative effects that static stretching has on muscle stiffness exist? Yes, it does. But you have to hold the stretch for a really, really, really long time. Can you avoid the negative effects of static stretching on performance? Yeah, just hold the stretch for 10 seconds or less probably, and it's not going to be a super big deal. So yes, it exists. So let's give an example of when the interference effect can negatively affect you or can impair strength or hypertrophy. So, and I think Lauren made a, a really good post about this the other day on uh, uh, the Mass Research Review Instagram. And so there's an older study. I think she cited that first study from Hickson in 1980. And in, in a study like this, and I won't talk exactly about this one, but in this study, they generally did where individuals are lifting weights, let's say four or five days per week. And then if you do that, that's a lot of work, hour, hour and a half, two hours each time, full body, squatting, training the lower body then you are incorporating in, let's say five more days of running and you're running for 30, 45 minutes, an hour at a time, running pretty intensely. And so now what happens is you're going to still get bigger. You're going to still get stronger. But if you were to get maybe this much muscle growth or this much strength without that running, when you incorporate that running, now maybe you get this much. You see that attenuation. But, and I should, you know, we've got our, our dedicated podcast
0: listeners who cannot see the animated hand gestures, what what Mike was uh, pantomiming was that the cardio basically leads to still gains, but smaller magnitude of gains relative to lifting alone.
1: There you go. Right. I I, I love the live folks. I'm here for them. Now on the back end, you can edit that and you can say I love yeah. the, uh, the podcast listeners. All right. And um, so now when we see that attenuation, though, what's so important is to keep in mind the dosage that we talked about. We're incorporating their five days of hard running into five days of hard lifting. That's a lot of work. So the magnitude of the interference effect really depends upon the dosage of the aerobic exercise that is included. Now, there's a bunch of meta-analyses over the past decade on concurrent training. And I wrote a concurrent training article at Mass maybe a year or so ago, and I summed up all of these. Now, what these meta-analyses are showing is that there's either no negative effect on hypertrophy and strength or a small negative effect of hypertrophy and strength with the the interference effect. Because these meta-analyses are taking into account all of the studies that exist, no matter the duration, the modality of aerobic exercise that was used. And studies have gotten better over time. People have gotten smarter in that they realize, well, if we have somebody lift weights for three or four days a week, then we're just incorporating two or three days of cycling at 30 minutes or less at a moderate intensity, or we're incorporating sprints on the cycle, right? Hit high intensity interval training. And we're doing that on off days of lifting. Hey, we're not really seeing this interference effect. And so that's where we have to consider the dosage and then the timing, right? Of the aerobic exercise. So if you want to lift weights and get bigger and stronger, but you still enjoy a little bit of running. You wanna run eight to 10 miles per week. And you wanna do this on your off days from lifting, or maybe you wanna do it uh, at night after you lift your upper body earlier that day. And you're just jogging at a pretty moderate pace, an easy pace. I can say pretty confidently that that's probably not gonna affect your strength and size at all, right? A very little bit. The only way it probably would in that case is if you were under eating and you weren't replacing the calories that you were expending. Um, And then that's because you're in a deficit, not necessarily a direct effect of that aerobic exercise. So does the interference effect exist? Yes. But can you avoid it? Also, yes. Something can physiologically be a thing, but practically you can work around it. And so I think like this, when a first study is done, like that Hickson study in 1908, when that first study is done, it's done almost to show a point. Does this thing exist? and yes, it exists. To go back to that stretching study, there's a study from Fouls in 2000, and they showed that static stretching decreased plantar flexion strength acutely, but they held the stretches for 135 seconds, right? Yeah. So it's showing that point. So there's more to get to and more to unpack here, but the bottom line is, if you wanna avoid the interference effect, I don't think it's that hard. You can be pretty smart about it. Try to keep the exercise, the aerobic exercise at least four hours apart from your lower body lifting. If you can, 24 hours apart from your lower body lifting, keep the duration a bit shorter, 30 minutes or shorter, not too intense if it's continuous exercise. And I think that you should be okay. The issue comes, and and I don't want to go on too long, the way I always frame aerobic exercises, if eventually, if you do too much of a dosage of aerobic, it will interfere. But I always frame this as, are you looking to complete the aerobic exercise or are you looking to compete in the aerobic exercise? If you are looking to compete and you want to run a sub three-hour marathon, you could still get bigger and stronger. But at some point, running 70, 80, 90 miles a week, just practically, it's going to make it hard to lift. But if you just want to complete that run, that race, that 5K, I wouldn't worry about the interference effect. Just follow those simple rules, and I think you'll be fine. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic
0: summary. And one thing I would add that I think often gets overlooked is that when we talk about the interference effect, and interfering with resistance training adaptations we sometimes gloss over the fact that resistance training adaptations is a broad category right so you might be training for power you might be training for strength or you might be training for hypertrophy or something else right and what we what we know uh very definitively in my opinion is that if you're going to be experiencing the interference effect from the cardio that you're doing you're most likely to see it impacting your power performance, you know, explosive, high-velocity muscle actions. It's usually the interference effect is a little bit less pronounced when we start look transitioning from power outcomes and looking more at strength. And then when you start looking at hypertrophy, you actually kind of have to do a lot to really meaningfully interfere with hypertrophy, right? So in a study like the Hickson study where, like you said, it was kind of a proof of principle, let's go you know really exaggerated with the protocol and just show that this effect can be induced that's very different from like sometimes i'll I'll hear from folks who say yeah i'm really serious about my lifting i want to you know be very muscular i lift for hypertrophy but i'd really like to do like you know a 30 minute jog twice a week for my heart health i'm just worried about losing all my gains and it's like you you will probably lose virtually zero percent of your gains in that particular scenario so it's really important to realize the distinction there between power, strength, and hypertrophy. Um, and there was a question in the chat here from Philip M. And I'm taking it, but not happily, because Philip M., when we started our live stream today, he put a little message in there and said something like, oh, I love office hours. You know, these are fantastic. That message has been retracted, Mike. All I- I'm looking in the chat, and it just says, in brackets, message retracted. So Philip I don't know what we did to you that made you change your opinion on on office hours, but stick around to a- ask a question. So let's try to make it up to Philip. Let's win him back over, okay? And, and let's impressive here. He says he does weight training five times a week. He likes to walk for cardio. Uh, he started to wear a, a weighted vest to kind of increase the effectiveness of his walking for cardio, effectiveness in quotes there. At this point, it's a 40-pound vest. Uh, I think weight has been added to it, and now it's starting to feel like a chore. And the question is, should I go lighter or should I just suck it up? Um, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, but I'm going to throw my two cents in because you've been hogging the mic, quite frankly. I think in this situation, uh, it, it makes me wonder... I, I think you have to really think about what the term effectiveness is referring to there, right? So effectiveness... The walking is for cardio, but is that for, uh, you know, adaptations to the cardiovascular system, or is it for just burning some calories, increasing energy expenditure? I would say uh, if the intention is for cardiovascular adaptations, I would say, uh, if anything, lighten up the vest a little bit and focus more on your walking pace or potentially focus on walking at a grade, right? So um, if, if I were walking specifically for cardiovascular purposes rather than focusing on adding an external load i would probably try to walk at a more brisk pace to to induce a slightly greater stimulus for the cardiovascular system or uh, if possible depending on how you're doing your walking if it's outside you know you're kind of stuck with the grade of your surrounding environment but if it's treadmill walking i would think grade and and pace are really what i'm manipulating rather than uh, external load I know wearing a vest became really popular uh, from some of the really fascinating research on the gravidostat, the idea that our body has a weight regulating uh, mechanism that relates to essentially the gravitational pull on our bones. This is a semi-evidence-based theory, I think. And what that's not to detract from it. It's, there is evidence for it but we really don't understand it all that well. I, I, and that's not to d- diminish it because I think it's fascinating. I hope it's legit. I hope it's, I mean, I think it's really cool. And there is evidence there. We just don't really understand it that well. But um, anyway, people got really into doing weight replacement uh, because they're basically, there was some rodent research where they, when they found, you know, if, if the rodent loses three grams of weight and we replace three grams of weight, those gravidostats, it almost made it look physiologically as if their body was like, Oh, nope, weights, totally normal, no need to induce metabolic adaptation or conserve energy. So it almost made weight loss and fat loss a little bit easier. Um, but, uh, so yeah, people got into that kind of replicating that concept where as they were losing weight during bodybuilding contest prep, they were adding more weight to their vest to kind of replace the weight that was lost. Um, and there's been some really interesting uh, anecdotal reports from people who have done that with great success. But ultimately, I would say it, it just kind of depends on what you're trying to do. In the vast majority of cases, I would say don't add so much weight that it feels really burdensome. When you're in that situation, drop the weight a little bit or entirely if you feel like it and focus more on pace and potentially grade. And Philip, I, I see you in the comments there. It looks like uh, everyone relaxed. It was just a mix-up. He did not retract his positive comment because he changed his mind about the show. He still loves it. And Philip, we
1: love you. We appreciate you. Mike, what do you think? Uh, I think you're right on the money. And so, you know, my, my response to something like that is always that, yes, this can absolutely be effective. But if you're taking something that you did because you really enjoyed it and you wanted to do it and it's becoming a chore... It doesn't mean, you know, there isn't something to say for yeah, you know, work through that a little bit and so forth. But if you're doing it because you enjoyed it and it was your preferred, you know, method of cardio or or something that you like to do for fat loss, and now it's becoming a chore and something that you don't look forward to, I would say keep that original intent in mind. And one of the reasons it may have been successful at first um, is because you you were excited about it and you're putting that effort into it and so forth. So. You know, I would I would be cautious about um, you know continuing on or, or saying I always need to suck it up and push through it on this walking thing uh, because you know walking is something that is enjoyable uh, and you want to keep doing and you want to stay excited about. So I'll look at it, I'll take it more from that perspective, uh, and say that if it's getting too much of a chore all the time, uh, you know, then then consider if that's really how you want to deal with it uh, every single time.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right, Mike, we've been talking a lot about exercise and exercise is fine. It, it's totally fine. However, we need to get into a little bit of nutrition. Okay. that That's my sweet spot. And if you want to take a break, if you want to leave the yeah. room, grab a drink, whatever you want to do.
1: Uh, sit back. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it. Gabriel asked, uh, first of all, he said he loves the office hours. I appreciate that, Gabriel. Uh, the question is regarding protein intake, is there any benefit for going above 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass for adaptations other than muscle growth, such as increased collagen synthesis or something like that? Um, To the best of, I, I have not personally seen any evidence pointing to really tangible benefits of going beyond that range for any specific outcome. So uh, when people go above that range for resistance training, uh, very rarely, uh, if they're resistance training, uh, you know, very rarely does it increase our typical resistance training adaptations, such as building more muscle, gaining more strength, things like that. You typically max out the effect of protein in that regard uh, in that 1.6 to 2.2 range, or potentially even below it in many cases. I, I've, uh, for some reason, the hill I've chosen to die on in life is that. I think 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram is certainly a sufficient protein range, but um, I, I think we treat that range as if as if there's a really uh, specific cutoff at 1.6, and we know for sure that 1.5 is insufficient. And I I just push back against that every opportunity I get. When you look at the meta analyses on the topic, it's very difficult to suggest uh, that there's a clear cut difference. Uh, between 1.4 and 1.6, for example. Uh, I think for most folks, they really wouldn't even notice the difference in gains, and there might not be any detectable difference at all between 1.4 and 1.6. But all of that is to say, uh, for the kind of traditional resistance training adaptations, uh, there's really no benefit to going beyond, you know, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. I've not seen any evidence that it's advantageous for things like, uh, you know, collagen synthesis or connective tissue growth. I think if you really wanted to do what you could to facilitate collagen synthesis, there's really two things you can do. Number one is train, you know, uh, actually stimulate the tissues that you wish to grow. Uh, so training uh, has a, an impact on stimulating collagen synthesis. And the other thing is just making sure that you have the raw materials to, to make the collagen, right? So uh, eating a well-rounded diet with plenty of protein, with plenty of vitamin C, and with plenty of glycine uh i, I have mentioned t- uh, in previous mass articles a lot of folks talk about taking collagen supplements to uh to try to increase collagen synthesis and that's intuitive um, and you know you, you can have some very interesting discussions about the efficacy of that particular supplementation approach but i've argued in some mass articles that when you really dig into it uh, mechanistically collagen supplementation, if it does work, probably should be working mostly by just providing more glycine. And I think if you, uh, you know, if you really wanted to maximize your ability to synthesize collagen, you would eat a pretty normal amount of protein, make sure that you have a well-rounded selection of proteins, no major essential amino acid deficiencies or, or insufficiencies you would make sure you have plenty of vitamin C in the diet, which is a critical precursor for collagen synthesis, uh, that often gets overlooked mostly because let's be honest, most people get enough vitamin C. So that's why it gets overlooked. Uh, people don't talk about it because it's usually taken care of. Uh, but yeah, protein, vitamin C. And I would say if you are going to supplement with anything beyond that, my personal approach would actually be glycine, uh, maybe in, in the range of like three to five grams, something like that. Um, but yeah, so protein, uh, I think the only reason that I've ever recommended going above 1.6 to 2.2, in rare cases where someone is just ravenously hungry, and I say let's try to bump up the protein a little bit to try to offset that, and that works uh, in the short term. It, it, it tends to work out okay. Uh, you could argue that that effect kind of wanes over time, the the effect of protein on satiety. Uh, so you only play that card when you need to, in my opinion. Because uh, once you play it, you you can't play it that many more times. Uh, and then also, really lean people who are dieting super hard. Our good friend Dr. Helms many years ago published a systematic review indicating that, uh, as best we can tell from the literature, the studies weren't really designed to test this hypothesis directly. But as best we can tell, it looks like you know really lean people who are dieting really hard their protein needs might be even a little bit higher than what we see in the typical person who's lifting. Uh, So in that case, I will sometimes go above that 1.6 to 2.2 range. All right. I had to get a little nutrition in. Uh, It's it's whatever. Yeah. Contractually obligated to. Now, Mike, I want to get to what I consider to be the highlight of this episode. I'm I'm calling the shot. Uh, There was a study, okay? And every now and then, uh, usually a few times a year, there's a big study and everyone starts talking about it. It's all over social media. And we were not the first to discuss it, but we wanted to make sure we took time to chew on it, read it carefully, read it thoroughly, and digested what was in it. And uh, you, I'm going to give a little sneak peek. You have some content about this study coming up in the next issue of Mass, and I think it would be good to address it in office hours as well. Uh, I don't really know how to frame this question because we got a bunch of questions about this. But basically, there was a study the amount of volume was high. Uh, the, I think the popular interpretation is that the study suggested that when you go from, correct me if I'm wrong, if you go from really high to super
1: high volume, there's some added benefit there. Is that the kind of popular interpretation? That's popular interpretation. I've seen the, the highlight number is 52 sets per week for quads, um, and is 52 sets per week um, needed. So I I would, I would frame this question or the, the collection of questions, if we collate them all uh, as what do we think of the new high volume study? Or do we think that really, really high volumes are necessary to maximize muscle growth? That's how I would probably frame what's out there. You think that's fair? I think so. And and I'm interested to hear what you have to say. All right. So yeah, this study, um, is very timely. So uh, I know some of these dates because I just took a look at this Uh, and it was published ahead of print on September 26th. And I think it came out on PubMed on October 12th or 13th, something along those lines. And so, you know, we really worked hard to get this into the November issue of Mass. Uh, Typically for everybody out there, when we start, you know, getting our articles, it's a a little bit earlier for that because we need enough lead time to be able to write for an issue Um, And so we have all of our articles done maybe mid month, you know, around, let's say the 15th of a month for the issue that comes out on the first and we're revising and so forth. And so when this one came out, I'd already picked my articles. I was already writing. I was in the groove. But then we saw this title and we got a question about it on the Facebook page and uh, wrote a response to it along with some other individuals. And and, uh, I was like, you know, we got to get this in there. So I made a video that is called um, Really High Volumes Revisited. And this study makes up a component of that video. And so it's coming out on November 1st. But this, this study specifically from Enes et al, Enes or Enes et al, E-N-E-S, not sure how to pronounce it, effects of different weekly set progressions on muscular adaptations in trained males, is there a dose response effect? Now, the highlight was that there's a group that did 22 sets per week for quads. 42 sets per week for quads, and 52 sets per week for quads. So 22, 42, and 52. They trained for, it was a 16-week study, but they trained for 12 weeks. I'll get back to that in just a moment. 22, 42, and 52. There were no significant group by time interactions, but the authors presented confidence interval data that seemed to lean in favor of the higher volume groups, the 42 and 52 versus the 22 and everything seemed to scale with volume. So I'm pantomiming again for those uh, uh, listening as a podcast, but um, it seemed to scale with volume and that the more volume tended to lead to more quad growth, even though there was no statistically significant difference uh, in the gains between groups. But it's not that simple in my opinion. I'm going to start with my overarching conclusion, then I want to work our way back through the methods more and talk about it. My overarching conclusion is that I don't think we should use this study to unequivocally say, hey, more volume all the way up to this point is going to optimize muscle growth on the group level. We need that. I don't think this is strong enough evidence to show that. Now let's work back, talk more about the methods of the study because I think those methods have gotten lost and I think that's very important. And you know how I know they've gotten lost tracks? Do you know how I know? How? It's because of my... International social media presence that I'm out there these days. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing what's going on on the ground. And because I'm sweeping the nation, I get all of it in real time. I didn't used to. I used to have to ask, hey, what's going on out there? Trucks, helms, Lauren. But now I know. Yeah, you've got so, your
0: ear to the ground. You're kind of, you've got your finger on the pulse. That's uh, all the metaphors I know for that particular scenario.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, that says it pretty well. And so being out there, I feel the, the nuances of the methodology have been lost. So overall, this was a 16 week study. They trained in the main training program for 12 weeks. Again, 22, 42, and 52. The 42 and 52 sets per week group did not start at 42 and 52 sets. They progressed to 42 and 52 sets. Everybody started at 22 sets. It was only in the last week or two of the study when they were doing that. Right. So they did not start there. Um, in the first four weeks of this study, weeks one and two, the authors did a nice job They had all subjects reduce their habitual training volume by 40% in week one, and then reduce it by another 40% in week two. They called that the washout period. So that period was essentially there to normalize everybody to where they were. So if if you think about that in research, and you have everybody coming in at all of these different volumes, and somebody's doing 45 sets per week, and then they start doing 22 sets per week, and maybe they lose muscle. Maybe they just maintain muscle. They don't grow at all it would be erroneous to say that 22 sets isn't enough to grow at all in the group level. In reality, these people cut their training volume a ton. And so perhaps they just didn't grow for that. So those first two weeks, they cut their volume a lot to normalize, to wash out. Then in the familiarization period, weeks three and four, subjects added four sets um, from weeks one to two. So a little bit more. Then in the next 12 weeks, individuals trained twice per week. They had a six to eight rep day and eight to 10 rep day, And they trained the squat, leg, press, and leg extension to a two RAR in each of these sessions at a different number of sets per week. All started at 22, the 42 and 52 gradually added sets to build up to that in the final week. Now, if you notice, I said they trained the squat, leg, press, and leg extension, meaning these were all direct sets. There weren't any indirect sets. They were all direct sets on the quads. And so over time, again, no statistically significant differences between groups, uh, when we looked at cross-sectional area, muscle thickness of the vastus lateralis, also different regions, proximal, middle, and distal. The confidence intervals seem to lean in favor. And if you do look at the confidence intervals in this study, and if you are in, the, in mass, you'll see specifically, I, I, I put these out there, um, made some nice tables with them on November 1st. They do tend to favor the higher volumes, uh, but again, it's not statistically significant difference. The other point to bring up is the individual rate of response here. And this is such a huge thing in resistance training that to me is just at the forefront of new research these days, which is why is there such an individual response and what is accounting for this individual response? So if you look at the data in this study, the individual that had the largest decrease in vastus lateralis cross-sectional area was also in that 52 set per week group. So while the confidence intervals did favor the higher volume, there was an individual, and we're talking about 10 subjects in the 22 set per week group, 10 in the 42, and 11 in the 52. So one out of those 11 saw almost a 4% decrease in cross-sectional area. Now that's just one person, right? On average, the confidence intervals did favor the 52 set per week group. But there were some variation in each of the groups up and down. It's nothing that you could say overwhelmingly, everybody's going to respond better to this. We're looking at things on a group level. We're not looking at any significant by time interactions. I don't think we should take this and say unequivocally working up to 50 sets per week is what is needed. I think it can work. I think it can work for some people. And I wouldn't argue that it does tend to lean in that direction. And the, the, the one reason that I wouldn't necessarily argue too strongly with somebody that's showing it leans in that direction is if we go back to some of the other high volume studies of the past five years, the Schoenfeld et al. study from 2019. Um, then we have another study from Brigato, which came out, I think in 2019, but was only published in print in 2022. These studies worked up to in the high 30s or in the mid 40s for sets per week. Um, the Schoenfeld study counting indirect sets as well. Both of those studies also tended to show that things scaled with volume. The Schoenfeld study didn't use no hypothesis testing, so it wasn't a significant difference or not, but did show that things scaled with more volume. The Rigato study also showed that, but of all the muscles they examined, there was only one significant difference in favor of higher volume, Uh, and so in the highest volume, there was 32 sets. So across the literature, I would say that there's a lack of significant difference when we look at all these studies across the board, but things do tend to lean in that direction. And I think it's probably because there's an individual rate of response that is keeping it from really being that statistically significant, especially at that high volume. So I want you to jump in here, Trex. Um, so it's my second time tonight hogging the mic, but for me, I would say that this isn't evidence to say you should do this and do this all the time. Rather, I think it's something that can work in some individuals if they should be exposed to really high volumes. Now, what accounts for that? We can't say yet. But what is evidence for, in my opinion, is that volume cycling to some degree is probably a good idea because if 52 sets per week is good, that's probably not sustainable 365 days a year. And even if it was, now in this study, all they did was train one muscle group. Now you have to do it for all muscle groups. It's impractical to do it for legs, back, biceps, chest, shoulders, triceps, all at the same time. So you'd probably have to build up on a few muscle groups, keep the other muscle groups low, then switch them, then maybe bring everything back to maintenance and then go again, just from a practical perspective. I don't think we should take this study and say unequivocally 50 some sets per week. is amazing. Um, I think we should take it and say there's individual variation. This can be good for some. I'm going to stop now because I'm losing my voice. I had my first seven-year-old soccer practice last night and I was yelling and screaming at those kids for an hour straight. So I can barely talk.
0: Well, you sip on some warm tea, put a little bit of honey in there. And uh, you know, uh, Helms, being considerably older than us, I'm sure he has some great tea recommendations for winding down, but I'll jump in here. And I I would just kind of echo your interpretation i would also add a few um kind of practical points so i think you're correct um you know it's you could if you want try to scale volume up like crazy but uh, when you scale volume up for one thing you usually have to scale volume down for another thing or you're just going to be stuck in the gym forever so like uh back in the day uh when it was fashionable i i would do small of that program for squat. And I would do small ob junior for bench sometimes. And if you're not familiar, if you didn't lift in 2012, uh, (laughs) and then um, basically you would do like small ob junior. I think you would do like you know five or six sets of bench on Monday, and then come in for Wednesday. You'd do like six or seven, and then you do like eight on Friday, and then like ten. I think you did ten triples on Saturday. And so I mean, you were doing just a ton of sets and, and you're, ramp, you know, ramping up the load every week. And so, you know, every now and then I would go in and do, uh, you know, around a round of small off for bench press. And um, when I was doing that, I'd have to scale down a bunch of my other upper body work because like, you only have so much time and you only have so much work you can really put in the gym. Um, you know, you, you can't just infinitely scale all elements of your training program. So um, yeah, I was doing a ton of set volume and it was always at the expense of other things. So you'd have to very judiciously determine when do I really want to push my bench press or my squat and do this type of programming, and what am I going to sacrifice in the meantime, right? Um, and, and so that's one practical point. Um, you know another thing that I think is worth considering is when you think about you know dramatically scaling up volume like this, and i'm I'm a, a what I would call a recovering volume addict in terms of my training preferences. Or just a volume addict. I don't know if I actually have really shaken it, but um, you know, I, I think you have to very seriously consider what is the benefit and what is the cost of this dramatic upward trajectory in volume, and to not get a you know statistically significant or practically significant advantage while you're when you're, I mean, doubling your time in the gym. Like, I mean, you said it was the the lowest volume was like 22 and the highest was like 52. Is that right? That's correct. 22 direct sets per week for quads. Uh, And scaling that up to 52. So more than doubling your volume and saying, I think if you squint and look at it the right way, maybe there was a slight advantage. That's a big cost for a
1: marginally, I mean, like maybe not distinguishable advantage. Right, so they they ended up doing eighteen sets of squats, eighteen sets of leg press, and um, sixteen sets of leg extension. And so the one thing I'll, I'll keep this quick, but that that truck said that's a lot of cost. And so the, the terminology I've been kind of adapting lately, it'll probably catch on just like my Instagram. But when you consider something like this, I always try to say now think of the downstream effects. So what are the what do I mean by that? The downstream effects of doing this is. Well, the extra time it simply takes to complete that workout, do you have it? The acute fatigue, the session RPE that might increase, the maybe lack of enjoyment after a while with this, maybe leading to lower adherence over the long term, perhaps an overuse injury. I can't say any of those things for sure. And those things are going to vary from person to person. Um, But if you're a coach and you're utilizing this, you're always keeping tabs on those things. So those are what I'd call the downstream effects. Nothing comes. Without a cost, right? Nothing comes yeah. without a cost. So I think that's a really, really good point. And just because something works, even I think, is a negligible benefit, as as Eric said. But even if it did work in that short term, looking at a a, a study that does one mesocycle of training is not what we say. So all the all the time, right? Yeah, you need to do this all it the perpetuity. time. Yeah, right.
0: The first first mesocycle you scale from twenty two to fifty two. Second mesocycle. Mesocycle, you go 52 to 105, then you go 105 to 155, and you just go from there,
1: right? Right. Use your, use your Smoloff example, right? So, And I, I remember Smoloff um, uh, by heart because I was victim to this, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, so Smoloff Jr., as you said, is 6x6 at 70% Monday, 7x5 at 75% Wednesday, 8x4 at 80% Friday, and 10x3 at 85% on Saturday. small off the real deal, which most people did for squat, which I did for squat, Um, the base mesocycle, the base mesocycle. I made it through the intense and I crushed that. Wow. I know. Thank you. Um, uh, four by, uh, nine at 70% on Monday, seven by, uh, uh, four by seven at 75% on Wednesday. Um, seven by five at 80% on Friday and 10 by three at 85% on Saturday. And so what what happened is like we said, just okay in perpetuity. What would happen at this time, this miraculous time in lifting, which was 2012, where my squat numbers were considered non terrible, not good, but non terrible. Um, you'd run this base mesocycle, you'd get this 20 kilogram increase, you'd be on top of the world. So what do you do? Let's let's run it again. Run it back. Right. Yeah. I did that. Let's go. Of course, we all, of course, yeah. of course we did that. And uh, let's run it again and see how that goes. And it doesn't go, uh, it, it, it doesn't work. It never worked um, and and so forth. And so that's the thing to consider. And so, you know, th- there was another question. I can't remember if it was in the chat earlier or it was in the questions that were submitted. And it asked about what's a study, something to the effect of, I'm not looking at it. What's a study you would do if you weren't constrained um, by time Practicality, yeah. Practical, we're constrained by ethics. Yeah. Um, right, right. And, um, you know, the first thing that, that comes to mind is just, you know, and we're constrained by, I forget the terminology, but being miserable, like you're, you're just like your well-being of being in the lab so much. It would be to do a really, really long-term study. Yeah. Right? Like, that's what we need. We need a two-year, three-year ecologically valid study that's not even just testing one thing that's getting feedback, just like you would coach somebody and doing almost semi-structured interviews after every block, seeing what they could do, making changes upon that, and looking at these comparisons uh, within individuals over time, because we just don't have that long-term data. So um, anyways, getting getting off now a little bit, but yeah, there's a cost to everything. Um, and so just because you see something in the short-term, you know, doesn't mean it's what you wanna do in the long-term. You know, it'd be really cool, honestly. Um, a lot of folks, like just
0: speaking practically, you do a PhD, you're probably going to be doing it for four or five years, usually, I mean, minimum, usually. And, you know, you're usually going to be doing it on a campus. It's very common that you recruit students to do your studies. Uh, You know, people who are just walking by, they see a flyer. I think it'd be a really cool model if someone decided, what I'm going to do is when I recruit a cohort of PhD students, they are, you know, that year going, we're going to recruit a giant cohort of incoming freshman students. And we are going to try to do like longitudinal sequences of three and four year studies that essentially make up the bulk of the dissertation for this cohort of PhD students. Right. And so of course you'd, you'd have smaller experiments interspersed throughout the thing, but like this could be done, I think in a way that's not actually all that terrible. I mean, you'd have... A tremendous dropout you know you'd have a, a great deal of attrition but
1: i don't know i think i think there's something there it's that'd be tough so i like the thought process so it, it, it one you'd have to recruit a lot of people yes be, it, because I'm, I'm you're getting big mike i feel like
0: i okay. know i know i'm not just saying like oh yeah here's a throwaway idea I, i'm sure no one's thought of this but like if you recruited like a like it'd be an undertaking it, it'd be right. like oh, it'd yeah. be the primary if not only focus of your lab is to basically have this kind of sustained long-term resistance training research program.
1: Yes. And so the, the first reason I say you would need a lot of people because you would get attrition, not just for the normal reasons, but you get attrition because people aren't going to come back to the university the next year. Yeah. You get attrition for people are, you know, going to, to transfer out, they're, they're going to do whatever it is they do. In addition to, you know, just dropping out of the study, um, now, if you do something like this, keep in mind for everybody that's watching or listening, this isn't going to be conducted under normal laboratory conditions. Because if you have that many people, they're not feasibly going to be able to come into your lab. Additionally, they're going to be leaving school for Thanksgiving break and winter break and spring break and all of these reasons where that is so difficult to carry out some of this long-term study and summer break and that sort of thing. So um It it would be very, very difficult. You would have to almost set up um, some sort of app-based training where they could report in, um, but you were able to get everything done at the rec center. You would probably need a lot, a lot of funding for this study uh, to be able to pull this off for your app and to be able to compensate the individuals coming in. Um, and to probably be able to pay them for some sort of extra check-in at times something to incentivize them to do that but and you would probably need to get specific classes at the university on board which would be helpful yeah so if you could get really really high enrolled classes in the freshman year freshman seminar classes or english classes or things like this that are part of a university's kind of like intellectual foundations um that would be the way to go but that would be you're thinking big um, I'd love to see it and uh, but hey you you go you finish uh, finish up at Duke get a faculty position and uh, put your students on it. all right we'll do
0: now I, I do want to get back to the the kind of the root of this question because you had mentioned uh, downstream effects and and kind of you know thinking big picture about trying to sustain such a high set volume for for the long term you know you know, week in and week out, month in and month out. And uh, Sean, who asked a question about high volume, he mentioned right here in our chat at, at the very beginning of our stream, he said, you know, I, I'm doing a program right now and, you know, I'm feeling a little bit burnout cause I'm doing 30 plus sets per workout right now. And that's like a pretty direct manifestation of kind of what we're talking about, which is that in many cases, uh, a lot of folks have to really pick and choose when they're gonna do these high volume pushes in their programming. And it usually does take the form, like you said, of some deal of kind of cyclical modulation of training volume, you know, cycling volume up and then back down and building back up from there. So uh, a lot of times people look at these workouts and they think they can translate the final week of training straight into their program and just do that, you know, in perpetuity. And in this case, that'd probably be very, uh, very hard to sustain and probably not very advisable. Uh, But on the topic of things that are advisable, uh, Sean had a question in here in the chat, what are your thoughts about progressing set number and RPE throughout a mesocycle? And so if we're not going to be doing these really dramatic jumps in set volume, uh, as, you know, like like we saw in the study that we just chatted about, what do we actually do? Um, and I think there's a lot of very defensible ways to kind of approach progression throughout a mesocycle. I'd certainly be happy to share something that's worked very well for me uh, both with my own training and with clients in the past. Um, I don't like to make really big changes in set volume within a mesocycle. And the reason is um, when you start changing set volume and you start making like pretty substantial changes, you are really dramatically altering the the physiological demands of that program. Like it's hard to make very subtle changes in set volume, in my opinion. Uh, when you compare it to the other types of levers that you can pull, when it comes to uh, programming someone's training, there are much more, you know, subtle things that you can do to induce some degree of progression or or manipulate some degree of progressive overload uh, within a training program. So, what I usually find is that the set volume that's appropriate for an individual relative to their goal. It's usually not that different at the end of a mesocycle as it was at the beginning right i mean usually when i'm putting together a program for an individual knowing their training status their background their goals how they respond to certain programs usually their set volume i have a pretty good idea of what's appropriate for them and what they can handle in this mesocycle and for that reason i don't usually change it very much throughout a mesocycle but i do change some things what i usually do uh when we talk about within mesocycle is I like to focus on proximity to failure. And Mike, I. this is not the time for us to get in that that age-old argument. Um, I, I know that you have radical views on proximity to failure, but uh, and we're going to talk about them very shortly. That's why I, I threw this in here as a segue. But what I like to do is, at the beginning of uh, a mesocycle, for our big compound lifts, our big heavy lifts, like our bench press, our deadlift, our squat variations, things like that. I usually start, uh, with proximity to failure being the, the target will be probably in the four ish range. So four repetitions in reserve, um, usually at the beginning of a mesocycle, sometimes three or four, depending on the lift and the circumstances. Uh, you know, sometimes you mop, you, you kind of change things around. Cause You've got the one person who always underestimates their, their reps in reserve and the other person who always overestimates and you kind of have to you know individualize that and kind of nudge things a little. But anyway, I, I usually start around four repetitions in reserve and then as a mesocycle progresses, we go down to three, we go down to two and sometimes when we're really pushing it, we might be down to one. And of course, there's gonna be times when you pick your spots and you actually are pushing things to uh, an RIR of zero Um, but that's not something you're pulling out of the bag super frequently for something like a deadlift or a squat in in training, at least not, not, uh, not for people who are not like, you know, competitive power lifters who are in the most intensive, intense training period of their life. And even then, I I think you want to use that zero RIR pretty sparingly in the vast majority of cases. Um, so that's what I do for the big compound lifts. For the accessory stuff, um, the stuff that's just hard to mess up, you know, <laughs> bicep curls, tricep extensions, lateral raises, um, m- maybe I do a little bit of progression. Maybe we start at one to two RIR and then at the end, last week, I just say, screw it, zero, <laughs> zero it out, you know, because l- let's be honest, you know, what's the difference uh, in terms of your ability to recover and what's, what's the overall cumulative load of you doing Lateral raises with two reps in reserve versus one it it just it just doesn't really matter all that much so I really focus on uh, adjusting proximity to failure and specifically with regards to the
1: big heavy compound lifts. What about you, Mike? Yeah. So the one thing that that I noted and I can't speak to the specific program that that Sean is on, but you talked about progressing uh, sets and RPE, so doing more sets and doing them closer to failure. So if you're progressing them at the same time, I don't know if I would advise that because now you're you're progressing two different things. That's a lot more demands as track set. Uh, it's a lot more of a stimulus. If you're used to doing, you know, uh, three sets uh, of eight reps to a, a seven or eight RPE, so two or three RAR, and then all of a sudden the next week it's four sets to a zero to one RAR, a nine to ten RP. That's a huge difference. That's a lot more uh, of a deal than just progressing from three sets of eight at a two RIR to four sets of eight at a two RIR. So what I would probably do if you wanted to take that approach is go from, let's say, three sets of eight at a two RIR to then four sets of eight at a two RIR to then four sets of eight at a one to two RIR or something like that. Um, w- one thing that I, I would do in this case is I'd, I don't know if I would have pre-programmed progression of sets and RAR or RPE, I would want to see how that individual is doing. Right. I would I would say, are they making progress? If they're making progress, I'm probably gonna leave it alone. As Trek said too, it's okay in the last week or so of the training block all right, if we want to do a little bit more. But also are we talking about progressing a set and the RAR on every single exercise every day for that week or Are we saying, hey, we've got our main list and all our resistance movements, and on that last set of squats on at the end of the week, so that one set, that's we're going to do that progression. That's fine, not a big deal, right? Also, if we were to do something like, you know, either go to failure or we were to increase that RPE, we would be able to have quantifiable data from that week compared to the last week and say, hey. We got ten reps at this load as opposed to nine reps on this load, or I did um, you know a hundred kilos for ten reps at a one RAR versus last week I did ninety five kilos. So I, I think that's good in that you can have something quantifiable and people like that. But to I, I think that's an important distinction. Are you making that set progression and that RPE progression on every exercise every week? That's a that's a lot right? I don't think I would advise that. Um, but if you want to do that on an exercise or two, uh, one day out of the week, I think that's probably fine. But I would be more of let's see how this person is doing and let's make that progression. If you do make that progression, doesn't work out so well, then I might pull it back. The other thing that I would do is you can use metrics to make that progression, right? Saying like, all right, we're going to train 100 kilos um, I think this is something that this person can squat for 12 reps. I'm going to have them do it for eight reps. So that's a four RIR. Once they can, they're going to fatigue a little bit from set to set. Once they can do four sets at a two RIR or more, then we're going to add a set. Right. Um, and that might take two or three weeks, but at that point, you can be reasonably sure that they've made the adaptation already where they can now then handle that load, then that's probably how I would progress sets rather than pre-planning that and also increasing RP at the same time. Yeah. Now, we. I want to hear your thoughts. We've had people asking,
0: uh, since we're on the topic of proximity to failure, about a recent meta-analysis that you were involved with uh, related to the topic. Uh, but before we get to that, Um, I need to dive into the chat here because there's some more slander going on. I need to kind of get ahead of this. So uh, some speculation, reckless speculation that I'm uh, drinking cheap beer on air um, and claiming that it's non-alcoholic. People think I'm lying when I talk about my beverage, so I'll just leave it a mystery, but this is not an alcoholic beverage. I will keep it in the mystery uh, sleeve that keeps it cool and comfortable to carry. Um, So shame on you for the speculation in the chat. Someone noted that our uh, page currently has 666 subscribers, um, and they uh, discussed some of the, um, I guess, demonic uh, connotations of that number. And I do want to acknowledge that since I'm at Duke, we are the Blue Devils, and that was kind of one of my lines in the sand. I said, if we're going to do this, I want to make sure that we cap it at at 666 to just stay on theme. So uh, I appreciate you for noticing, but... When we're talking of subscribers that does bring me to another troubling observation another trend that i keep seeing which is that the number of viewers is greater than the number of likes and to me that is uh like i said troubling concerning i might even say insulting uh it, it does hurt so if you are listening uh listening live I do encourage you to go over and hit that thumbs up button, hit the like. It helps us get out to more people, which is uh, very much uh, important to us. We want to spread the word and spread the science. So if you're a listener, uh, take a moment to reflect on your behaviors, whether or not you've liked this episode, you've subscribed to the channel or subscribed on the podcast platform that you happen to be listening on. All right. With that out of the way, Mike, uh, let's dive in. Uh, Robinson et al., a meta-analysis looking at proximity to failure and the outcome of interest. Was it hypertrophy, strength, or both? It was both. It was both. Okay. So uh, anytime a meta-analysis comes out on this topic, it generates a lot of discussion. And uh, I was on a meta-analysis on this topic that came out in, in pretty a uh, pretty similar time frame. And people thought there was going to be an all out civil war within the mass crew because Helms and I were on one. You were on another. Was
1: Helms on that one too? Helms was not on this one, but okay. one, of his, one of his students was. Okay, but the sides were picked. And it was. The, the lead author on the one you were on, Martin, who did a phenomenal job. Yeah. Was also on ours and did a phenomenal job helping this one. Yeah. And so, so uh, I don't know what he's going to do. He's going to have to pick a side.
0: Yeah, it, it's tough. But uh, basically, they, they both came out around the same time. And the thing about meta analyses, meta regressions, is that the devil is in the details, right? And, and the interpretation is very specific to the methods that, that were implemented. So, um, without all the, we don't have to necessarily compare the two of them, but the Robinson meta analysis, we got a question from a listener about it. And who better to tell us about it? Well, maybe Zach, but. We don't have, Zach, so let's have you tell us
1: about it. Sounds good. Um, yeah, the, the one thing that was it was interesting to me, because I, I wasn't expecting a, a comparison between the, the two metas, is that they genuinely answered different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not answer the same question. The one meta-analysis or series of meta-aggressions included almost double the number of studies that the other meta-analysis included, and that's not better or worse. It's because it was answering a different question. Um, so it's not surprising they got different results. Uh, and I can say that both of these were very, very, very well done. Uh, both lead authors, um Martin and Zach did a phenomenal job. I know each other well and and they're friends. and uh, they did they just did a great job. And so uh, I'll speak to the one that Zach did uh, because it's the one that I'm the senior author on. and uh, uh, you know, Zach, first and foremost, I mean let me let me take a moment in all seriousness and highlight him. Um, He did a phenomenal job. He should get the credit uh, for working on this. Uh, While uh, we have other co-authors on the paper, and I am the senior author on the paper. It's just a preprint, right? We're going to submit it for a review. Um, He just did a great job. He spent years on this. Um, He refined his approach. He learned how to do it all himself and did a great job. So um, I'm honored that he brought this for for our laboratory and led the way. And so what the series of meta-regressions found... Or what it—I should say—back up and say what it wanted to look at was, to date, the meta-analysis that have been done have answered a different question, which is looking at failure and non-failure training in a binary fashion. So, does training to failure lead to greater muscle growth and strength than not training to failure? And for the most part, and trucks, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Most of the metas on this have shown, eh, there's really no difference between training to failure or not training to failure. Kind of do whatever you want type of deal. Now we should consider those downstream effects. But taking that out of the equation for a moment, do whatever you want. It's a binary fashion. You like train to failure, go for it. You don't want to train to failure, that's fine too. This meta-analysis wanted to answer a different question. It wanted to answer what is the dose response relationship between proximity to failure and strength and muscle growth? Meaning if we look at the slope really between R A R and muscle growth or R I R and strength. So does training to failure provide more growth than a one RIR, and that provide more growth than a two RIR, than a three RIR, four RIR, five RIR? So just the directionality. As you get closer to failure, do you grow more or do you grow less? As you get closer to failure, do you gain more strength and do you get, or do you gain less strength? So it's a dose response question. That's different than the binary question that the other metas have analyzed. And now. What's also interesting about this, when Zach and I set out to answer this question years ago now, maybe three years ago or so, we were interested in the strength component. To us, that's what we wanted to do. But the hypertrophy component is getting all the headlines, right? This is what's all over the place. So we'll go with the hypertrophy component here for a moment. So if you look at the take-home figure in the meta regression, this tends to show that, yes, you do gain more muscle. As you get closer to failure. And there's a pl- pretty clear trend showing, yeah, as you get closer to failure, a three RAR is better than a four, a two is better than a three, a one is better than a two, zero is better than a one. And actually failing does actually seem to be the best, right? And there's different definitions of failure momentary and volitional, and we can get into all that. But in general, as you get closer to failure, we tend to gain more muscle. Now, as Trex alluded to earlier, I've had some radical views people would say in the past on proximity to failure. And I've written about proximity to failure and mass a lot. And I was under the opinion that, hey, if there's no difference between training to failure and not training to failure, the question then becomes how far can you train from failure and maximize muscle growth? Because if I can train at a four or five RIR and I can maximize growth compared to training at failure, then I might want to do that. I might be a little bit more fresh and maybe I can add another set, maybe do a little bit more volume and grow more. So at first I was a little taken back. Zach ran the analysis and showed me the results. And I was just like, no, no way, man. Are you, you're telling me that, you know, I was way off base on this. And he was, you know, um, he said, I'm not telling you you're off base, but I am telling you that these are the results. And, uh, um, and so I took a look and, and those are indeed the findings. Now, I, I don't think we were that off base though, in my, so my past remarks, and I think it's interesting to consider so many things that I've written down first and foremost, and I actually posted about this earlier. I, I this is a topic that becomes very, very polarizing for people. And I think it's important as I've stepped back and thought about this, there's a lot of people in a camp, like you suggest not to train to failure and they say, but you have to train to failure. I've been doing this. And a lot of people that don't train to failure say, you know, ah, you're not based upon science. You're just doing this. In reality, if you think anecdotally, a lot of people that have trained to failure have seen really good results. And a lot of people that haven't trained to failure have seen really good results. And so I think people are drawing on those experiences and saying, hey, don't attack my side of this because I've been doing really, really well. And I think those are both warranted because you can grow from both of these uh, training models. You can grow from training to failure and not training to failure. Now, let's go for a second based upon the premise that training to failure is a little bit better for muscle growth. I'm not 100% sure that it is, but let's go on on that premise and the directionality is there in the meta regression. Let's now understand that this is when set volume is equated, right? So that's a big component here of the meta analysis, right? We're talking about when volume is equated. So if training to failure gets a little bit more growth on a per set basis, now let's consider some of those other downstream effects. How difficult is this? How fatiguing is this? Is somebody really going to adhere to training all the time and that sort of thing? So then let's step back and say, all right, if three sets to failure, I'm doing the pantomime again. I know trucks. If three sets to failure gets you this much growth, right? And then um, three sets to a one RIR gets you this much growth. I'm slightly less. There you go. I'll let you do the, uh, uh, um, the narration of this. Um, it gets you slightly less growth. The question then is how many more sets are needed to compensate for leaving one rep in reserve, right? So is it one more set? What's the, what's the slope between number of sets and RIR for every RIR you drop, do you need one more set for every RIR you drop? Do you need a half a set? Is that a linear relationship? Is it a nonlinear relationship? Does it exist at all? Right. Do do you need to add five sets for every RIR? That I don't know. But that's a question that I think we haven't been able to answer from this. So, if somebody looks at this and says, Hey, training to failure is better, I say, in what context? Right. And the exact parameters that we examined it in this study under certain situations, maybe. Also, that relationship really only existed with these moderate loads. Once you get up over 80% of 1RM or so forth, 85% of 1RM, it didn't seem to be as big of a deal. So, it's very important to consider these things. Then, We go practically, we have to consider the exercise that's being trained. While exercise may have not been a moderator here, training squats to failure every single session all the time is a lot different than training biceps curls to failure. If you want to train curls to failure, probably not that big of a deal. If you want to train squats to failure all the time, that might be something that's a little bit too taxing. Maybe your technique breaks down. If you're going to absolute momentary muscular failure, you open yourself up to injury and so forth. So there's so many other things to consider on a practical, actual recommendation perspective. Our job in the meta-analysis is to only figure out what the data say. This is what the data say when you pull them and you run these meta-regressions and here's what we're seeing. But that doesn't always match up with exactly what we would recommend under all possible circumstances at all times. The one other thing that I think is interesting from the meta-analysis is... um, you, I, I've, I've heard people say as well, like you can't grow from training at a five RAR or a six RAR or a seven RAR. And I would say that you unequivocally can grow. Is it going to be optimal? That I can't say based upon our meta, meta regression. No, it's not. But you can grow. If you look at that, there is still substantial growth at these proximities to failure that are farther away. So if you take somebody who's doing nothing and now you just train to a 10 RIR, that's gonna be better than doing nothing. I'm not recommending everybody go out and train to a 10 RIR. I'm just pointing out purely scientifically based upon the data that exists that you can grow from that. But then we see that relationship go up. For strength, it's a different story. For strength, that relationship didn't exist. And I would suggest that you'd probably wanna stay a bit shy of failure for strength. Also for strength, it matters why the RIR is low. If the RAR is low or you're at failure just because you're doing a bunch of reps at 70% of 1RM, probably not the best way to go for strength. But if your RAR is at 0 or 1 because you're training at 90% of 1RM, well, it's going to be at 0 or 1 once you do 1 or 2 reps at 90% of 1RM. So the load is a, is a moderator in that case, and it matters for strength. So there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. There's more to say, um, but that's a whole office hours episode in and of itself. so I'll stop there for now. but we have to consider what the data say under what parameters, which is this volume equated and then uh, we have to consider if we were to add volume, would that compensate? would it not compensate? And there's all of those questions and then consider the exercise selection the taxing the, the how taxing it is. There's all those questions that we don't have the answers to. Um, so I can't say that. and if you're training to failure or training not to failure, and you're making really, really good progress with it, should you change either one of those? No, I'd leave it alone. Right. They're they're both appropriate and they can both be appropriate. And I don't think this changes that or takes away that. Also the last thing, and 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 um because Zach does a great job of this all the time. So I'm gonna do my my best Zach impression, except that I'm a Michigan Stan fan and he's an Ohio State fan. Um You're a Michigan and- fan? And I'm just hearing this? What well, I when I was a kid, I grew up and you know, 1989, 1990 the Fab Five, and um, that was the time they were the coolest, coolest guys in the world. And so I started watching them on TV right then. And I've enjoyed these last two years of uh, uh, letting Zach know that um, Michigan's on top now. And so other than that, now do you know all their signals, or is it just the coaching staff? So. So I was do, actually Do you like send Zach videos of you doing the audible signals that uh, Michigan illegally stole? Yeah. So I go around what I do is so I'm coaching a seven year old uh, soccer league here. So I, I um I buy tickets yeah. to all to all the other seven year old leagues <laughs> with my cell phone. And I, I have a I have a crew, so I give them to all the kids on the team. Zach, Liam, Jack. I say, All right, fellas, go out. Yep. I want you to sit there. You're gonna be unassuming. You're going to take this video report back it's actually i was listening to the rich eisen show earlier today um you know rich eisen went to michigan the sportscaster and he was talking about this and um that's a that's a topic for another day um but uh um i'll take that 49 nothing win over michigan state but the, the but, backstory, because i know a, a huge percentage of our our listeners do not care
0: about american no. football and specifically college football there's a cheating scandal that's currently unfolding. A potential alleged cheating scandal.
1: <laughs> Alleg- Alleg- Allegedly.
0: Allegedly. Yeah, and certainly Michigan and Ohio State fans are keenly interested in the results of that investigation. But, Mike, you were going to give a Zach impression before I derailed you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, as he always likes to point out, and rightfully so, because he was very cautious in the way he wrote this, is that we should, we should be very careful not to say that this RAR is where you need to train to maximize muscle growth or get over a certain threshold for muscle growth. Um, it's the the meta regression is only showing the directionality. That's all it does. Yeah, It shows the directionality. And if you read the full text, which it's long, I gotta give Zach so much credit because I always teach my students to be very cautious in the way you write, to not overstate your position, to understand that you could be wrong. And that you're only looking at this. A meta regression or meta analysis is only as good as the studies that it includes. And so, there's a lot of good studies out there, but more data might come out, and studies are conducted differently. And we run this again in 10 years with all this other data, and we find something different. Um, and that's how science goes. So, anyways, a lot, to, uh, a lot to say there. Um, but hopefully, that was helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely, um, and and like you mentioned, this is a topic that it it just gets so uh, the the reactions are visceral, they are intense. Uh, I I one time on the mass account made a post about uh, proximity to failure, and it was a fate worse than death. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. The uh, resulting conversation was lively, uh, but uh, yeah, I think I think what's what's going on there, if I had to guess, is that. A lot of folks, the way they feel about this debate: should you train to failure or should you not train to failure, specifically for hypertrophy? A lot of folks that I think indirectly gets at a pretty big part of their training identity, uh, where like the people who do the low vol or yeah the low volume high intensity training, they're like you know there's a few folks who who teach these particular ways to do it and they're fully bought in and they love it and they get great progress. And so once they do that, they say, like, there's, why would you do any other approach? Like, I'm only doing this small number of sets, I'm in and out of the gym, etc. And then the folks who feel differently and say, well, look at all these volume meta-analyses, like clearly volume is what's up. And if I can leave a few reps in the tank, I can do more volume efficiently and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so a lot of folks say, as an evidence-based lifter, uh, you know, i feel very strongly about this trade-off between intensity and volume and i err on the side of higher volume uh, and leaving some reps in the tank and i think once you kind of plant a flag on either side of the debate or even appear to plant a flag even if you don't mean to or intend to usually you get a pretty active uh active discussion that follows and ultimately you know i facetiously facetiously acted like it was terrible but those discussions are good and i think uh I think they can be really productive and ultimately at the end of the day what you find is there are many reasons or many different ways to train effectively right and so uh I, I think the easiest way to look at it is look at the highest level of any sport related to lifting and you say okay is there an absolutely huge person who trains this way and an absolutely huge person that trains that way this isn't i you know rock solid airtight logic but when you see a diversity of training approaches leading to very similar high level outcomes usually means that they're at least both viable doesn't mean they're both equally optimal but it means they're both getting you close enough to where you want to go uh, as long as they're being applied uh thoughtfully and effectively so um while i am a volume addict like the, the number of times I'll, I'll explain my training approach and people will say so you you mean to tell me that this high intensity low volume thing won't work and I say absolutely not. That that certainly can and almost definitely will work. You know, so um, yeah, th- those debates are always always fun, always lively. Uh, now, Mike, we've been talking for a while, and I have a question for you, and yep. it's going to be a little bit out of left field. So yep. I'm going to pose the question. I'm going to answer it, and 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 then I'll give you some time to gather your thoughts. I think this is a really nice one to uh, to end on here. Uh, All right, so. We've got a question from Floral Frey uh, in the live chat. And if if you're listening on podcast or you're catching the YouTube after we record being in the live chat, uh, you know, of course, we love that you're enjoying it in whatever way works for you. But being in the live chat, there's just nothing like it, Mike. You can't replace being here in the moment and experiencing this with the group. Uh, But the question is, what is an interesting piece of information that you've learned about at some point that people typically don't ask about? And I would say there's two different things. And one of them, I think I I briefly mentioned in a previous Office Hours episode, I'm one of those folks, like, whenever someone asks me a question like this, I go to, like, something that happened in the last couple weeks. Like, you know, like, I don't have this, like, long-term memory of revelations that, like, that are just kind of stored away in a bank that I can go retrieve. Um, But one of the things that I think people don't ask about enough is... What can we do with rodent research and what can we not do with rodent research? Um, you know, I think a lot of times people will on the surface say, well, it's it's not a human, but, you know, it is a mammal, right? So whatever we're seeing there should probably kind of make sense for humans. I think um, what's really interesting, yeah, and, and I, I get more of this the more that I interact with folks in my new department, like I'm in evolutionary anthropology now. And there are a lot of folks who do comparative physiology and look at different animal models. And then our building is literally the biological sciences building. I mean, we share it with the biology department. And so you see a lot of folks using a a diverse set of animal models for their research. And it's not just enough to say, hey, there's a difference between non-human animals and humans, but you actually have to dig in and look at the nuances of what makes this species different from that species and also different from humans. And so it, it's just really fascinating the more that you learn about uh, how odd it is, the, the way that we've come to do rodent research. And um, so for example, there was, um, uh, I, I, was I attended a, a really wonderful uh, like seminar lecture a couple weeks ago from someone who did a lot of rodent research. And he, he was talking about a particular uh, situation where a drug had been approved uh, based on a bunch of rodent trials. They had gone through every step you should go through in terms of getting a drug approved, but, um, they released it uh, out into, uh, they started doing an actual human trial with it. You know, it was working its way up. I I shouldn't say it got approved. It worked its way up and and was finally okayed for a human trial because all the rodent trials look great. Um, and they had serious adverse events like multiple organ failure, people that were in like intensive care. I mean, traumatically just absolutely devastating responses to this uh this drug intervention and the first thought was what the heck happened (laughs) like we did we did every safety protocol we did it on cell cultures we did it on rodents it looked fine all across the board um and then they replicated the study in rodents but instead of using uh you know lab rodents they got uh wild rodents like that that had like actually not been genetically bred to live in a lab their entire life and what they found was catastrophic results in the wild rodents as well. And essentially what they found was that the laboratory setting and the uh, genetic lines that go into breeding mice for research had created this version of mouse that doesn't even generalize to real mouse. It, it was like they have, you know, completely distorted uh, characteristics in terms of their immune defenses, their microbiome, their environment. Um, and, and so the more I learn about different uh Characteristics of rodent research, the more I it's not that I don't value it as much, it's but it's that I I really hesitate in terms of generalizability. And you have to really dig into not just saying, okay, vaguely humans are different than rodents, but like specifically what did this study find? And what are the weird little quirks and nuances of of uh the the specific mouse used in the study that would limit uh potential generalizability? Because it's weird when you think about like a lot of times these mice are very specific genetic lines and they're in low stimulus environments that are not natural for them. And like, I think I mentioned on a previous office hours episode, there is research showing if you just add more stimulus to their environment, just like literally put toys in their environment, they, they literally live longer. (laughs) Like, like you don't really think about the environmental setting and how it might impact the outcomes of these studies, but like you literally change the lifespan of a mouse by not putting toys in the uh the cage where it's living um and so when you're doing studies about survival like sure it's standardized across conditions but we're putting a weird constraint on the longevity of this mouse that's not natural for it and then we're studying its longevity which which is really odd um but uh, anyway th- there's so much that goes into it but like rodents uh you know they're they're on these modified light dark cycles that don't change with the seasons they just change when you come and turn the lights on in the morning uh, or you know however you you manage the the light dark cycle in that particular environment but there's no seasonality uh it doesn't get colder and warmer at different times of the year uh you know there's so many different things about their environment that that just no one ever asks about them and no one ever talks about them and it doesn't mean that the research isn't useful but, but it really adds so many barriers to generalizability. Um, and then another thing that I thought of when I saw this question here, and I'm sure I'll think of a, a much better answer uh, as I'm laying in bed in about an hour. Uh, but one thing that people don't ask about is, uh, I wouldn't say this is something I necessarily learned or had an epiphany about, but we need more funnel plots. No one asks about the funnel plot. It always drives me insane when I, I'm looking at a meta-analysis and I see that the funnel plot is either non-existent or it's like hidden in a supplementary file that I have to jump through a bunch of hoops to go download, Um, I firmly believe that I didn't understand research well until I understood meta-analysis well. And the reason I say that is because when you are studying one, when you're looking at one study on a topic, the more that you get into the nuances of meta-analysis, you start to think it's like, going and looking at one tree and then telling someone all about the forest that you just explored and it's like well you only looked at the one tree and like that was a pine tree but what if that's only like two percent of the trees that are actually in that forest you go back and tell the story and say yeah i was in this forest it was just pine trees as far as the eye could see and it's like you're, you're just looking at this one little snapshot of a much broader picture when you isolate a single study so I feel like you don't really gain a a full understanding of a body of literature until you can zoom out and look at the totality of this literature and I think a funnel plot is a really beautiful way to get an understanding of, you know, how much precision do we have with our effect estimate? Like like how how confident are we of the effect estimate, the overall effect size that that we have kind of found ourselves leaning toward and uh, you know, what are the characteristics of this body of literature? Do we expect that there's uh, small study effects or small sample effects or uh, publication bias being the most notable? I think when you start understanding what a funnel plot tells you, it's like whenever you read a meta-analysis, it's the first thing you want to look at. And I think not enough folks embrace that particular um, that particular approach or, or mindset. And I also think uh, along those lines, I kind of alluded to this, but a lot of folks want to know with an intervention one of two questions. You know, when you're first getting into this stuff, a lot of times you want to know, does this thing work or not? Right. And so that's like the most basic element of information about some strategy, treatment, intervention, et cetera. Does it work or not? The second layer when you start getting into more nuances, not just does it work, but what is the magnitude of effect? Like what is the effect size here? Not just does it work, but to what extent and to what magnitude does it work? And I think the third level is the one that a lot of folks don't really get to, or, or it takes a while to get to that third level, which is where you say, I wanna know if it works, and I wanna know the effect size, I wanna know the magnitude to which it works, but I also wanna know the precision of our estimate. So if you're telling me it's an effect size of 0.3, does the confidence interval you know, span from essentially zero to point six, or is it from you know point two to point four? Like, like to what? How much confidence do we actually have in the effect estimate that we're getting? With what level of precision are we estimating it? I think that's kind of the next level of nuance that that uh, hopefully people will start kind of gravitating toward because. It helps you make better decisions about what interventions are worthwhile and which ones might not necessarily be worth your time, right? So a meta-analysis with a very precise effect estimate of 0.3 tells me a lot more than a meta-analysis with a very imprecise effect estimate of 0.3. And I would would use that information in a very different way. I shouldn't say it tells me more. It tells me a different story. And that means I would use those pieces of information differently uh, when it comes to actual practical application. All right, Mike, uh, have I, have I given you enough time to think of an interesting thing that you've learned at some point? You
1: have, uh, the only thing that I took from that is you were asked essentially, uh, I'm going to make the question a bit, bit bigger than it was like, what's the one thing you could change and you could you could do only trucks is going to stand up here and start shaking his fist at the sky and say more funnel plots. Yeah. I just imagined you on stage running for political office saying, uh, you know, so if you're elected, what will you do? Mandatory funnel plots. Everybody. Everybody. Oh, also, I forgot one thing about the mice because the mice, I threw the mice
0: thing in there because it's cool and interesting. And then I said, okay, let's talk funnel plots. Mice eat their own poop. And that sounds like a little bit of trivia. Uh, A lot of mice eat their own poop, but- that is kind of a huge deal when it comes to um, like where where they'll do studies where they're trying to influence the gut microbiome of a mouse and they're using some kind of like probiotic treatment. It's kind of a pretty huge deal if you're eating your feces. So just throwing that out there is another thing where, um, you know, you have to really think with animal model research, how does this animal live its life? How is that altered in the setting of laboratory conditions? And therefore what uh, what actual conclusions can I reach? Because I hate to brag, but I don't eat my own poop. So my response to that probiotic might be different from that of a mouse who does. That
1: was an excellent addition at the end. There. Yeah. And so th- this really is a great question. I'll keep mine short. And so there's, there's two things here. One, I've already talked about in a previous mass office hours. So uh, I won't elaborate on that here, but that's neuroprotection. Um, and the ability of exercise to um, uh, enhance neuroprotection and neurogenesis over the long term. So the maintenance of brain health and the maintenance of neurons as we age can can really be leveraged through exercise. But aside from that, the the other thing I want to mention is something else that I've been researching now for about six years. And uh, as of late is really something that has been a, a huge focus for me. And It's something that I wish I, I don't want to say I wish I cared more about years ago, but something I just wasn't aware of. I wasn't engaged in. And that's really not just the psychological component that's related to exercise, but that's related to behavior. So what kind of interventions can be done to change behavior? And so I have a really, really good colleague, great friend, and we were both conducting studies related to exercise on cancer patients a few years ago. And our laboratory has does a lot of work with exercise and autoregulation in resistance exercise in cancer patients. And we were taking them through an intervention. And my colleague was looking at the barriers for why breast cancer survivors and breast cancer patients wouldn't exercise. What are these reasons? What are these barriers that you have to not going to the gym? Is it the perception? Is it the cost? Is it you have low self-efficacy? You just can't feel that you can do it. And he said to me that, Mike, that intervention is great, but if you can't even get them there in the first place, then optimizing this program, if you will, it doesn't really matter. We have to get them there. And so a- another factor for this has been, this is my wife's line of research. She's a professor in nutrition and she works on on, on behavior change studies and has been funded by, um, you know, she's a real scientist, been funded by uh, federal funding national organizations here and looks at nutrition education in schools to have behavior change for for kids. Looks at food insecurity and uh, um, just understanding that people are food insecure. Maybe they live in a food desert and they don't have access to these things. That's a barrier. So, what kind of interventions can we do? We first need to understand what these barriers are and then what the interventions are. To remove some of these barriers. And maybe it's just to raise self efficacy, rather, it's to raise motivation uh, and to do some other things on this. And so that's kind of what we tried to do. You know, Trex and peer review, you, you, we talked about briefly this month. You and I have a, a, a former professor kind of mentor to both of us, Dr. Brian Folk at the aforementioned Ohio State, who is a, a phenomenal expert in this, far better than either of us in these areas of, of behavior change. Um, and so, for me, that's something that doesn't get talked about enough, and that it's not enough to say, "Hey, let's go and do this thing." And for, uh, it, it, what has to be done is to understand these theories of behavior change, whether it's health belief model or whatever it might be, to allow people um, to make these long-lasting and sustainable changes. And that's across exercise, that's across nutrition, uh, that's across so many different things, these theories exist. And that's something that doesn't get talked about enough that our laboratory has tried to get into. Um, and uh, I would like to see you know, a lot more people in our space talk about it as well.
0: Yeah, it's huge. And it's actually an area that I'm hoping to get into myself uh, at my new role at Duke. Uh, I'm collaborating with some folks who are experts in qualitative research. And they have done some work related to uh, barriers to health-related behaviors, and it's something that I'd be really interested to uh, to dig into is, is uh, uh, trying to branch out. And I, all the work I've done in my research career has been quantitative in nature, but I think there's so much you can learn uh, when you sit down with a participant in a more open-ended conversation and say, so this intervention didn't go the way that we expected. Tell me about it right and of course you you have more guided outlines than that for for the discussion, but you try to get at this source of like what are the actual barriers here and I, I think what you find is when you look at some of these qualitative studies that take that format, it looks it looks an awful lot like good coaching, right so understanding not just did this work uh, but what were the barriers what were the challenges we faced what were what was kind of the the things that you enjoyed more than you expected or was a little bit easier than you expected and I think uh, all those different behavior change models then kind of help you anchor your observations to some kind of theoretical framework. And uh, during peer review, I had mentioned, you know, I I took, uh, it's a small, it really is a small world. Like I took uh, Dr. Folk's class as a student and you collaborate with him. And there's no
1: reason that we should have a mutual connection from that, you know, like I mean and and, and uh, my students who we mentioned earlier, Zach Robinson and my other PhD student, Josh Pellin, they were Dr. Folk students. Were they uh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah. They worked in Dr. Folk's lab. Oh and, wow. How, yeah. And and so that's how when I connected with, with Dr. Folk and then another um, one of his PhD students, Curon Farman, who's now assistant professor at South Carolina just what a phenomenal individuals that a lot of great work in, in exercise and cancer research Far So they're my mentors in this area. They're the reasons I got into it. Yeah. And, and and Helms knows them as well. We, we've all worked together and, uh, that's how, you know, I got to connect with Zach and, and, uh, and, and Josh, and they came down here. So he, he's just the greatest guy. And Dr. Folk has competed in bodybuilding show. Oh yeah. Yeah. Multiple definitely. Bodybuilding shows.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I was, uh, what I was going to say though is like, um, Nowadays, especially in my mass writing, I find myself leaning so much on all these different uh, behavior change models and theories. And when I was taking uh, Doctor Folks' class, I I really didn't understand at the time how important the information was. I paid attention. I did well in the class. Um, you know, I was a respectful student and, and everything. I wasn't like sleeping in class or, or ditching the class, but. I didn't really fully appreciate how important and how useful those things were and uh and yeah I look back at it and kind of have uh, a retrospective much higher level of appreciation for that course and it when I was actually living it in the moment I would look forward to that course just cuz we would chat about bodybuilding stuff uh before or after the lecture like I would ask him a few questions about he he did powerlifting as well um yeah I I think his uh I think he was like a, a pretty good power lifter back in the day. Uh, He may still be. I don't know. I I haven't kept tabs on his lifting uh, progress. But either way, wonderful guy, uh, excellent uh, researcher, and an odd connection that we really shouldn't have because I just took his (laughs) class in Ohio. I moved to North Carolina. I guess you guys connected, and then I connected with you. Completely unrelated. But anyway, yeah, like you were saying, um, learning how to help people change their behaviors is the art of coaching, you know, it, it, it truly is. It's not necessarily creating the most incredible spreadsheet you could ever imagine.
1: Yeah, definitely, man. It's, it's pretty cool. And, uh, for the, the questioner here, Floral Frey, who just responded there in the chat, um, thank you for praising our answers, but it was a fantastic question. And, uh, as Struck said, an absolutely perfect one to add on. So we're really, really glad that that was helpful for you. Um, and a, a great way to to finish up here so thanks for the fantastic question
0: yeah and I will say just as a general note a uh, really lovely chat this evening a uh, lot of great questions a lot of great responses in there uh, the viewer numbers are going up uh, congratulations to everyone for getting in on the ground floor as this uh, rocket ship goes to the moon you guys are all the original supporters and we'll have to make you t-shirts or something but uh, anyway thanks so much for joining us. Uh, If you haven't already, be sure to like, rate, subscribe, uh, leave a review, preferably a good one. Um, If you're going to leave a bad one, maybe skip the review for now. Um, As always, you know, we're here live on YouTube. You can catch it later on YouTube. We leave it up or you can catch the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that different stuff. If you want to submit a question for a future show, The link is in the description of this video. Uh, You can submit that link is open 24-7, or the best way to submit a question is stop on in, join us live for an episode of Office Hours. Now, big announcement, this upcoming week, which I believe is November 1st, is that right, Mike? That is correct. So Wednesday, November 1st, we are actually going to have a rare non-live episode but you should still tune in Wednesday evening to catch it because at some point on Tuesday afternoon, evening-ish, I'm going to upload a video that is going to be absolutely fantastic. The reason we're doing this is because our cover story for the upcoming issue of the Mass Research Review is a wonderful interview between Lauren and Eric Helms. Uh, So it's a fantastic interview. Um, we wanted to make it available to everybody, um, not just our subscribers. It is our cover story. And, uh, so since it's our special extra special cover story, we'll make that available. We're going to put it up here on YouTube and then we'll be back to live episodes one week after that. So we would only put this up if we thought you were going to love it. And so it'll be on YouTube and it'll be out on the podcast platforms as well. So stay tuned for that coming in one week. Then the week after that, right back here, live as always. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you have a fantastic week, and uh, we'll be back very soon.